Hi, everybody. It's uh, Richard Zwicky with The Green Peak. And joining us today, we have Roy Bingham, who is the CEO and co-founder of BDS Analytics, along with Michael Arrington, who is the principal analyst for BDSA. Welcome aboard. Thank you. Great to be here again. So, you know, my background's long history in analytics outside the cannabis space and then operating in cannabis as well in different areas. Um, it's the underpinnings by which all business has to operate. Because I always, you know, we in marketing, you always say you can't measure you can't manage what you don't measure. And the reality is true of every business. And without good data, you really can't make good decisions. Tell me about how you came to start BDS and what part of the analytics space you're focusing on in terms of supplying data back to the industry. Well, thank you, Richard. You're making, uh, you're speaking my language immediately right from the start. Um, yeah, we started uh, BDSA in 2015, and uh, that was largely because my co-founder, Liz Stahura, and I had a background in doing similar businesses in other industries, and we were excited about the potential of the cannabis industry at that time. Uh, she was based in Colorado. I was actually based in Rhode Island, which is kind of a laggard state in this, uh, in this development, but obviously Colorado was at the forefront um, and Liz had worked in data analytics uh, for the biking and outdoor industry, uh, which, of course, with lots of independent stores and collections of chains, et cetera. So great experience at compiling tons of data and making sense of it all. I had worked in the natural foods industry uh, with a company called Spins uh, and also with Nutrition Business Journal. So we had looked at both a very detailed individual skew level information and also the big picture today we're going to talk a lot about the bigger picture of total industry trends but of course everybody knows that that is all built on one individual transaction in one dispensary including one or these days typically two or two and a half products in that basket and that's what bdsa's specialty is we have partnerships with hundreds of dispensaries who give us all of their point of sale transactional information. Um, that would be uh, terrific in and of itself, but of course we then have to clean it all up. Um, because right. You and in the industry know there are no standardized SKUs, barcodes, and all that sort of thing that is normal in other industries. And so we go from the product descriptions entered into the point of sale systems uh, we correct all of that and standardize it all for back to front, front to back, mistypes, all those sorts of things. Uh, it's amazing how many ways you can describe a single product, sometimes 50 different ways. It turns out to be exactly the same product. Exactly. And then we uh, create a catalog of every product in the industry or virtually every product in the industry. Um, and as a result of that, we can then aggregate all of that data up um, state by state, brand by brand, individual product by individual product, and get fascinating insights for our clients about product trends, product category trends, growth rates, uh, which attributes of products, which flavors of edibles, all of those sorts of things are, are absolutely essential in marketing. And why did I want to do this? Because I had worked in marketing and sales in the natural foods industry. Right. And I would have no idea what to do without this quality of data analytics. Well, it, it's incredibly challenging. And, you know, with, in this industry, of course, because there is such huge uh, product variability and a lack of standardization, 
uh, within regions and within states, it's hard to do an apples to apples comparison of the product. So how deep are you going when you're trying to build comparables so that people, yeah. let's say in New York can look at the data from California and have real insights they can pull out? Well, you're absolutely right. It is a lot harder than almost any other industry because any other industry has the same products in every state in the US. Tylenol's the same everywhere, right? <laughs> you know, we also cover uh, the provinces in Canada as well. Uh, but right. the US um, was a challenge for us. We have to have an individual panel of dispensaries in every state uh, so that we have a representative sample of every single state's activities because they are massively different, both in terms of the individual products that are approved and licensed and being sold in, in those states, and of course their characteristics in some cases. And then there's also the, the factor of maturity of the states, which we can talk about later. And it's wonderful having Michael Arrington here as our principal analyst and has been uh, helping us leading our market forecasting activity for um, longer than he and I care to remember now, Michael, I think. Um, and uh, so the emerging markets versus mature markets um, is also transformational when you actually understand uh, what trends happen in the first one year, two years, three years from a product standpoint and what tend to happen by year four, five, six, seven. Um, yeah, and so it's that, very that, important that when people are comparing what's happening in my state, they're looking at our data set. Uh, they want to look at comparable data by maturity of market as well. Well, yeah, let's talk about that for a second because you do have trends that are normal that will exist in the development of each market. What are the big high-level changes that you see from when legalization happens or a market opens up to compared to a year, two years, and four years without? Because the consumer becomes more educated and the demands change, but the level of sophistication in terms of requests for delivery systems and everything else also changes. What are the biggest things you see? Because, you know, a lot of the analysts with the banks and everything else had predicted that by 2021, flour would not be the dominant uh, means of delivery. They were completely all off in terms of timing. Uh, they expected it all to be extracts and isolates um, by 22. It didn't happen. But that doesn't mean you're off. It just means the trends uh, in the market weren't factored properly at the bank level. What are you seeing? Well, it is a matter of maturity. So yeah, typically in that first year of a market, either going legal adult use or going legal medical, um, you will see flour being very much the dominant product, largely because it's the first product that uh, dispensaries are able to have on the shelves. That doesn't mean there isn't demand for concentrates, edibles, and other formats, but typically it's the first thing that people have, and we're all used to seeing, you know, uh, a huge line out of the door. And the majority of those people are coming away with flour at first. Um, typically, what happens is the manufacturers have a lot of trouble trying to keep up with supply, and then after six to twelve months, they're able to introduce. Uh, extracts and edibles uh, and other product formats in decent volume. Usually they sell out very quickly when they hit the shelves right. and then another sort of disruption. Yeah. Uh, after about uh, two years on average, you see a sort of normal kind of pattern emerging where 
the industry is able to supply what the consumers demand, although there are regional variations based on the regulations in certain states. Um, and so certain categories of products are different or are not allowed, for example, so there are regional variations. Uh, but typically what you will see is that flour starts off at 60 or 70% of total uh, sales and declines over several years in each state. Uh, it doesn't decline necessarily. It, it grows, but it doesn't grow as rapidly as extracts. Um, we also look at pre-roll as a subcategory of inhalables as well. And pre-roll universally has been growing very strongly as markets mature as well. And that obviously takes a significant chunk of the flower uh, market. Uh, so you'll tend to see is pre-roll getting up to somewhere in the 10 to 20% range with flower falling down to about 40%. Uh, and concentrates uh, taking something like 30-40% of the market and about 15% are edibles. That's sort of where it ends up, but it takes a while to get to that point. And that's uh, something which... And it also you know, depends, I should say, on regional price variation and all sorts of things. I mean, there, there's always factors that enter into it that cause differentiation, but what's nice for a, a business operator who's entering a market, especially as they're opening a new state or territory, is... The data you have allows them to do product planning and merchandising planning ahead of the curve to expect what the consumer is going to be requesting, not just listening to the customer walking through the door and reacting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we also do consumer survey work very extensively as well, because that tells us where consumers have come from and where they're going to. So we survey tens of thousands of consumers a year and two waves twice a year um, at the state level as well to make sure it's statistically significant in the important state markets. And so we're asking them, when do you consume? How do you consume? But also, why do you consume? And what conditions, if you're tr treating a condition, are you treating? Uh, and all sorts of uh, dozens and dozens of important questions. And as the consumer evolves, so you get an emerging picture of the future consumer. Right. And that's, I mean, that emerging picture of the future of your consumer. From a merchandising perspective, you know, I built a retail operation at one point. You're buying four, I was buying 14 months in advance of when the product would hit the shelves. And so you had mm -hmm. to be, you know, fashion forward in terms of your thought process of what was coming, anything you can do to predict the consumer behavior of what they'll want months ahead is a huge advantage because that's where you make your profit. It's by buying smarter than everybody else and merchandising more advantageously to be ahead of the curve, to know what the customer wants before they know they want it. Um, and of what, course, if you're vertically integrated, as many players are, it's about yes. what proportion of your uh, production is going into which types of products and then within those larger categories which subcategories and individual types of units you're going to produce it's um, incredibly important to supply chain management and logistics it is because you can eliminate the waste along the way which you know sometimes i mean it can be what destroys businesses is by having that waste and not being able to dispose of it later or disposing of it below cost to just turn the dollars um 
Roy, we do have to take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment on the Green Peak with Roy Bingham and Michael Arrington from BDSA. And we're back on the Green Peak with Roy Bingham and Michael Arrington from BDSA. And um, Roy, Michael, you know, part of BDSA's forecasting is looking at where the market's going to be in 2027 and later and 2025 and what's happening this year. And one of the things I noticed in the predictions was there's the growth that, you know, is predicted and going to continue in Canada, which is one of the most mature markets in terms of from when it opened to where we are today, although it's had its significant issues. But you're predicting a decline in the medical channel by 2027, uh, down to 200 million, which in many ways is counterintuitive to what what one would expect to see in the market. Why are you predicting that? Well, uh, specifically, it's following the trends. So we look very closely at the data that put out by the government. Uh, We we don't have a direct guide on, you know, we don't have in-store tracking of medical sales in Canada. Uh, but what we do have is quarterly estimate by Stats Canada. Right. Um, we see patient numbers uh, monthly by province. Uh, so for each province, we have a model. We project patients forward. Uh, we project spending forward based on that quarterly spending that we're seeing. Uh, we saw some stabilization in medical spending during uh, during COVID. We actually saw some increases in patients across a few different provinces. Right. The trend, the trend toward the end of 2022 and throughout 2023 has been uh, de- decidedly negative. Um, and so our forecast for 2027 is a, a, a projection of that, uh, taking into account the understanding that there is a likely a bottom to any medical market. Uh, it's just a number of people that are always going to feel the need to be part of the medical program, whether because they have an extreme need or get some kind of benefit from it. Um, or, or what absolutely depends by market. Florida, for instance, we expect to have a stronger medical market going forward. We look at Michigan, which has a very strong adult use market, and we see medical declining very rapidly. In Canada, but nationwide adult use, it's been growing fairly strongly, although slowing. Um, and we, like I said, begun to see those patients backing off and uh, medical spending on a quarterly basis going down as well. So, the fact that yeah. it would make a huge difference, of course, if would be any sort of a reimbursement um, by insurance or other, any other entity, then, but we're not modeling that in at present because it doesn't seem likely in the short term. Well, Canada does allow uh, $1,500 from uh, off your taxes and as a uh, reimbursement from the government for cannabis and for medical. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why it's just, um, I'm wondering if it's a shift in how the measurement's happening in terms, because people like to take advantage, of course, of that $1,500. Um, so how the child being measured, or is it the the application that is changing in terms of people are not going through, let's say, the pre- prescription program, which is available here in Canada as well, but are still using it from therapeutic benefits and thus able to claim? Oh, undoubtedly, the pattern is that people are using cannabis for therapeutic benefits. Um, we see this trend in most states in the U.S. as well. Um, they're just not bothering to go through the medical channel and the medical process. Um, and so, in Canada now, we have a you know adult use uh, being very much a dominant form. Um, 
not exactly clear why people don't take advantage of the benefits that are are uh, offered to them. There aren't many benefits in the U.S., of course. No, in the U.S., there aren't. In Canada, you know, in Canada, it's very simple because it's a year-end tax uh, claim, which is great. But um, you know, in, in Canada, you have the you have the different aspects. Your doctor can write you the prescription, which is beneficial. You can go direct to a dispensary uh, as well without a prescription and still access therapeutic and medical products. So it's a it's a it's a different situation because the, the Canada has the federal legalization, quite a developed structure. Whereas in the U.S., um, medical is more ephemeral in terms of the the connotation and terms because the application from a federal perspective isn't there, and people are still you know the medical professional isn't participating as heavily as it would here in terms of assisting patients. So it's it's more of a challenge, um, but with the maturity. Do you see changes also in the behavior of how much people are buying on a per capita basis and the sh a shift in the spending uh, as the market develops? Because it also goes back to informing the legislators of the patient needs and what are the therapeutic benefits so that they can open the doors in a logical way that meets their you know, perspective. The, the typical trend... Sorry, Ray, if you want to go ahead. The typical trend in medical, uh, U.S. and Canada, is that uh, medical launches, you you receive a lot of patients. Spending goes up. If you've got adjacent non-medical markets, uh, non-adult use markets, you might see some cross-border traffic. We had that in the U.S. where uh, spending per patient is inflated in the early days. Over time, as adult use comes in, we see a rapid decline of patients. And typically, we see increasing spending on a per capita basis, right? So the fewer patients you get, those patients that are left are typically spending more on average than the patients a year or two ago. And and just some specifics. So in Canada, uh, when adult use came around, we saw a pretty rapid decline of uh, patients. Um, and you know, Canada always had a fairly low percentage of patients compared to certain U.S. states, for instance. Uh, but over time, uh, we saw we had a healthier black market and gray market. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, BC, for instance, was, uh, was a big drain. There were uh, yep. quite a bit of, of, uh, of gray market activity. But well, we saw government had a heavy, has a heavy tax in Canada. There's a uh, yes. dollar per uh, dollar minimum tax in 10%. Right. Mm. Exactly. But so we saw patients decline very rapidly after adult use and then level off at the end of 2021, begin declining again toward the end of 2022. And we've seen patients go from like 270 in uh, late 2021 to just over 200 uh, this year, or you know, in the early part of this year. Uh, and we start to see that decline continue along those lines. Similarly, we've seen um, uh, medical spending, which sort of peaked at the end of 2022, uh, begin to decline on a quarterly basis uh, every quarter so far. So we're we're seeing pretty solid trends. Uh, you know, Right. From a, an overall point of view, I just want to point out that when we survey consumers about why they consume, uh, the majority will cite that they are addressing a medical concern. It may not be a diagnosed, uh, formally diagnosed medical condition, but they are saying they suffer from back pain or pain or anxiety or trouble sleeping. Uh, those are some of the top considerations, but the list goes on. 
they're just choosing to purchase a product very often in the adult use channel because of convenience or for other reasons. Um, but they are treating uh, conditions with cannabinoids. Yeah, and you know, anecdotally, when you walk into the dispensaries in Canada, there's the the sales there. They're not the medical channel, which is a part, although you can go through. But yes, most of the products are arranged for medical purposes, and then of course there are the adult use recreational ones as well. Um, so it's the bifurcation of the, the the revenue and the sales dollars is quite interesting vis-a-vis what happens in the states. But you know, one other point in your report, which I thought was really interesting and um, pertinent in terms of timing, is the changes that are happening in Germany because you know the U.S. is the largest consumer, but Germany is very much a driver in Europe. And for us to see changes there, it's really going to take Germany taking action, and they've scaled back their plans. How do you see that changing the marketplace? Because it will affect the global market. So we had originally forecast Germany uh, uh, at their word early in 2022 when we heard that that this was a plan for full-scale legalization. Germany is yep. 80 million people, twice as big as California. Potentially very large market. I, I think we forecast a fairly conservative uh, adult use start, assuming Germany did a an American adult use market style launch, uh, right. moving from medical to adult use. So we had forecast that, and of course, the result was after three years of sales, you know, a, a couple three billion dollars. Um, with the new scale back plans, we've got a couple. We've got a couple tiers to it. So we know that legalization, we know that uh, personal use and consumption, home cultivation, and cannabis clubs are are a factor now. And then we have an unknown component that's coming that is a scaled back uh, commercial uh, test pilot program. But we don't know the details of how many cities that's going to be, how many people it's going to cover. We have modeled it in our forecast for now as right. a about five percent of of adults in Germany receiving access to cannabis in the late mid to late 2024 timeframe, which is along the lines of what the government is currently saying. Uh, with that growing to about ten percent of citizens with access by 2027, so we see a much smaller total. Kind of less than a billion dollars in 2027. So we've lost quite a bit. Of, you know, we've taken out quite a bit of money from the overall global forecast by bringing Germany down to this thing. Um, I, I think that the the real issue here may be that is Germany sabotaging its opportunity for launching commercial adult use. So we look at New York, right? Legalization. Uh, only a couple of dispensaries early on. We saw a ton of black market things pop up, black, gray, whatever you want to call it, market things pop up. Right. And people begin to frequent those, right? So it's a huge issue now that they're beginning to establish actual legal dispensaries, this competition with those. Same thing. If you've got widespread personal legalization, you can grow at home. Not everybody's going to take that route, of course. Well, we got cannabis clubs, which are an easier uh, entry. What does that look like for the actual commercialized cannabis market that will eventually emerge in Germany? Is it depressed by that? Possibly. Right. So, Well, have you looked at... Le- when you consider the... The pathway that you know, let's say, uh, as a as a comparable Holland, or of course Spain with their cannabis clubs, and the shift in market. How how do you look at it relative to what's going on in Germany? Um, well, both both very different, right? You've got a sort of patchwork in Spain, depending on what uh, uh, on what state you're talking about. Uh, in the Netherlands, we've had this sort of gray area adult use uh, that was. You know, it's been around for much longer than the American cannabis industry has been around. 
cannabis tourism, et cetera. There have been some attempts to crack down on that, but there's still no legal production and distribution system in Amsterdam. People grow cannabis, yep. put it in brown paper bags and put it on the back doors of these coffee shops. That's no way to have an industry, right? So um, I, I think that the Germany, I, Germany is probably approaching it the right way. You're comparably, right? I agree. Yeah. But um, so, you know, the Netherlands isn't a real market. Uh, there, there's some medical, there's definitely adult use sales, but um, but but it's it's very different than any other kind of commercial cannabis market. It's completely yeah. different, but it's a measurement. As I'm from that part of the world, yeah. the country I come from is no longer claiming to be part of Europe, exactly. <laughs> they stand apart? <laughs> the, the reality is the European developments have been extremely disappointing, and the progress is extraordinarily slow. But then, of course, what we have to acknowledge is what you're expecting is federal change, and we don't even have that at USA after all no. the years. You have it in Canada and a few other countries, but it is an extraordinarily painstaking process, and there is a lot of resistance in the machine to full legalization of cannabis in any European country. Right, and I, I, absolutely right. We're not going to see it from the EC anytime soon, and uh, but I do think that other states in Europe will be looking at Germany, the reaction to their program, how ambitious it is, if they do this commercial pilot and are somehow able to come up with a rule set that that doesn't uh, annoy the eu then then maybe we could see it grow i, I think a lot of other nations they are going to be watching germany to see how that develops to decide what their own switches yeah and you know germany is so is i mean they're down economically overall vis-a-vis -vis the rest of europe from where they've been over the last you know 50 years but they still are the engine that drive so much of the activity uh and you know it's kind of like in canada you say when the u.s sneezes canada gets a cold germany is somewhat the same in europe uh with regards to its impact now with of course the uk standing apart that also affects um things and you know i know years ago i was in uh i was asked to present in front of the health commission in the uk that was studying the problem and the question they couldn't decide what to do um everybody wants to help the people but then when it comes to actually doing something it becomes a question of constituencies that are challenging we do need to take another short break but we'll be back again in a moment with roy bingham and michael arrington from bdsa um is there an area you want to chat on before on the last segment before we go that uh we haven't covered yet covered a lot of territories well we could probably just talk about you know the the size of market and the overall growth of the international market the u.s market just a couple yep. of numbers before we wrap up um does that make sense maybe for me. our kind of key takeaways yep perfect and we're back on the Green Peak with Roy Bingham and Michael Arrington from BDSA. And um, Roy, Michael, I mean, we talked just briefly a bit about looking forward to 2027. And the expectation is a lot of markets are going to open up by then. And But even without that happening, there's going to be growth. And the market size continues to develop. The demand is there. It's better for consumers to move towards the 
uh, legal markets than gray or black, which have existed in the past. So with the, you know, the revenue shifting, but what are you seeing as far as sales growth predictions and where is the growth going to happen that people aren't perhaps expecting those markets that are developing faster and different than everybody's been paying attention to? Well, I think it's worth just for a moment recapping on the last year was, you know, last year was a slow growth year. Um, there were a lot of factors behind that and a lot of it was driven by price reductions in the mature markets and the new markets not quite hitting their stride. Um, the good news is that in this year, we expect to see a market of 36.5 billion uh, global um, and we and that will be growth of 13% this year relative to last year. So growth is coming back to the market for various reasons. Um, and then we're expecting a growth of 11.2% compound over the next uh, four years until 2027. So we're, we are projecting a $55 billion market in 2027, um, which I think is pretty spectacular, really, over a fairly long period of time. I can't think of many other markets where you can expect 11% compound growth for the next four years. Uh, the U.S. Uh, will reach sales of $29.5 billion in 2023. That's up 12%. So the U.S. is, you know, engine of growth here uh, together with new and emerging uh, international markets. And Canada sales we expect to grow to $4.6 billion in 2023. That's up 9%. Um, they, of course, are by far the largest markets. Um, and in terms of what's driving growth in the U.S., it is uh, the emerging and new markets fundamentally with stabilization of the mature markets like California, Colorado, the Western markets fundamentally, uh, and tremendous uh, growth in uh, the new markets in New York, New Jersey, etc. Um, and that balances out to those sorts of numbers that we see. And, you know, speaking to that growth, I mean, the 13% and the 11%, 11.2% compound over time is phenomenal growth. But uh, as part of that, you did touch upon the fact of there's the, in the pricing contraction, which means the volume of consumption is actually going up at a larger rate than that, which would affect then where people are able to profit most in the supply chain. What are you seeing as a shift in that? Because that affects also the business operators and their planning. Well, every state is unique. I think it's fair to say like when it comes to pricing in particular, you know, we've seen dramatic movements in California and not a collapse, but a very substantial reduction in that market because of prices collapsing. Uh, but then you look at other markets that are growing very strongly despite price reduction. So as you say, significant increase in unit sales. Um, and because it is uh, all independent markets um, with no product crossing border, uh, that's going to continue for a considerable period of time, largely driven by supply constraints and or by uh, uh, monopolistic practices is not the right term. But when you have very limited numbers of outlets um, or limited numbers of brands, we do see higher prices, of course. Right. And Maybe I let me phrase that a bit different. As you get the volumes going up, and if there is a pricing contraction at the retail end, you still have, you know, if it's not, a, even if it is verticalized, but if it's not verticalized, you've got the producers, you have the processors, you have the packaging, you have, and you have the retailers, and, you know, another mm -hmm. stage in between. 
if the volumes are growing, the revenue is growing, at which point are you seeing the greatest gains for, because not everybody's going to be facing the same price contractions. Some businesses will become more profitable at different stages. So a processor may be able to make a better margin on the volume than let's say a producer who would be driving down the margin on a cost per gram, but still able to sell more product or be limited in the amount of product. So they're more squeezed. That shift in the market is incredibly valuable from a, uh, an operator looking at getting in and doing their own planning. Are you a, are you breaking down that vertical segmentation of the profits as well? Well, obviously there's a drive for efficiency across the board and everybody has to reduce costs in this kind of, um, at every step of the process. Uh, regionally, of course, we have great um, diversity in the US markets um, right. in terms of multi-state operators who are operating vertically throughout the segments that you describe, and then individual grower, producer, manufacturer, brands also operating in those states as well. It's hard to differentiate uh, who is uh, benefiting or who is suffering the most, frankly, in, in, in this kind of environment. I'm not sure we've got a lot of data on that, Michael, at the present time. Um, no, uh, we, 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 I don't think we get too much into the manufacturing chain. Uh, but I, I think in general, more processing on the product uh, yields a higher price, yields a more ability to distinguish as opposed to I've got a flower strain. I'm selling you you eights and quarters. I've got a, a an extract of a uh, an edible whatever product that that has a higher margin, hopefully for me than than just flower, right? So I, I, I think that's we, we we you know natural evolution of the market is from that flower to more highly processed products. We see some at the beginning, but we see much more later on. So uh, Roy, I don't know, like. Uh, premiumization of products, things like that, uh, is, I think, some way to cope with that, you know. I could, yeah, I come back to regional markets. I was just at the MJ Unpack conference in Michigan. Michigan still right. isolated with the lowest prices in the nation and with substantial reduction. So I think how are, how are the producers profitable in that kind of environment because they're looking at half the price uh, consumer price of uh, many other states and either they're extraordinarily efficient mm -hmm. or uh, they're not making any money and they're you know subsidizing their activities uh, somehow with capital that I don't think is really available in the canvas <laughs> at the present time no at the present time I mean it wouldn't make a lot of sense and you know it's um and it's all part of the the business planning and the data you've got is fantastic in terms of offering people the insights to make a lot of phenomenal business decisions. And I think, you know, part of what you just spoke to, um, Michael, about the uh, processors is key on that because the producers are always going to be pushed and squeezed to the lowest cost per gram. And so their margin is going to be how far can they drive that down and the best market. And retail is always going to have to have its, you know, its margins to operate and make business and for the longest time most of the profits were made at the retail end but now i think what you indicated um is that shift is happening in terms of the processors and the brands developing and becoming a much stronger part of the the capital creation network in the industry whereas at one point it was more just a, a step in the process 
Well, and it's part of the evolution you started off with in the beginning of this conversation from flat being the dominant format to uh, consumer packaged goods, essentially, and branded products being uh, the leading uh, source of revenue in the industry. And therefore, some brands beginning to emerge and beginning to hold on to a, a sticky price, you know, where an edible can hang on at $19.99. Right. Um, even though there are others available that look similar for fourteen ninety nine, yeah, and actually that goes to you know as a new operator or new market is opening up, they can that business can come to you and ask you about the predictions of what products are needed, and that allows them also to have more higher margin products on the shelves earlier because they may know that there's going to be this curve in demand, but there's enough of it for this high margin product that they could stock their shelves early and make more money and more profit early on, which helps them fund all their other activities and fill in the rest. Yeah. And, that's, and that's an incredible insight for any business that's trying to operate and open up. So I'd like to thank you for joining us on the Green Peak today, uh, Roy and Michael. It's been really fascinating and very insightful. Thank you. Yeah, everyone, please come to bdsa.com if you want a bit more information. In fact, we can bury you in information, but what really matters is the relevant information for you, and that's what we specialize in. And I think that's that's incredibly important. It's the insights that are offered. It's not data's, data's nice, but it's the insights and the understanding of what to do with it. That's the real value, and that's what you know the your organization adds on to it, is that perspective, which is what people need. So thanks for joining us. And thanks to everybody for listening. Please visit uh, BDSA to learn more and uh, to make even better business decisions. I'm Richard on the Green Peak, and I look forward to chatting with you again soon.